You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. It reminds me of an occasion I was speaking at a minister's conference where uh, they decided uh, out of sensitivity to some uh, exclusive samadus they thought would be present. I don't think any were present, but they decided that they would sing psalms exclusively and uh, they would sing the psalms unaccompanied. And they had a presenter who didn't know the psalms. He chose a psalm that I think had 20 verses to it. Uh, We sang the first line to the tune of one psalm, the second line to the tune of another psalm, and then the third and fourth lines to the tune of uh, yet another psalm. And we went through the entire psalm singing in this way. And since I was probably the only person present, A, who knew the metrical psalm, B, who knew the usual tunes to which we were singing it, and see, I was the poor fellow who was to get up and preach after uh, this. It was a very uh, memorably discouraging evening. (laughs) Well, we are engaged these Sunday evenings in a short series of studies in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Uh, We've come to the fourth of these, and uh, although this is never placed prominently anywhere. David Robertson always asks me for titles. I'm not quite sure why he asked me for titles, but uh, for this study I did give him the title of The Gardener and the Trees, The Gardener and the Trees. And uh, I think in the course of our study, uh, if we have time, we should see the significance of this. But we've come to a new stage in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis as I think is evident when we read this evening from chapter 2 and verse 4 to the end of verse 17. Chapter 1, 1 through 2, verse 3 is described the creation in terms of this rhythm of creative actions of God climaxing on the sixth day when in contrast to the way he has made everything else according to its kind. He makes man according to his own kind, in his image and likeness, to serve and represent him, and also in his life to be uh, someone who is in communion with God, and therefore needs to be, in many respects, actually like God. So he creates man holy and righteous. He creates man with abilities that the other elements in creation do not have. So here is chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, And no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. When all this was true, 
Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters, Obviously, therefore, Eden was on high ground on the assumption that rivers did not flow upwards at this period, but as they do today, flow downwards. Eden must have been on higher ground, and these rivers flow in the name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, as I say, we've come to a new stage in these opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and to a second account of creation. Not a contradictory account, in some ways not even an alternative account, but a different account and a complementary account. The same is true when we read the Gospels. The Gospel writers will describe one and the same event, but sometimes they will describe that event from different points of view and with a different teaching goal in view. And that, I think, is certainly true of Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 1 is a kind of panoramic view of the creation of the whole cosmos. Genesis chapter 2 is a focused exposition of the creation of man. The technique that is used here, actually this is true of many things, the techniques that we see our movie makers employing as they begin movies are often techniques that are found in a literary and narrative form in the pages of Scripture. There is the, there is the vast picture, the panorama of the creation of the cosmos. And now instead of a panoramic view, 
the author of Genesis gives us a vista. Now, I understand sometimes vista is used as though it meant panorama, but vista means a narrow and a focused view. Whereas in Genesis chapter 1, creation moves towards its climax in the creation of man, Genesis chapter 2 focuses down virtually immediately on the local environment in which God is creating man and gives us a more detailed description of exactly how it was that he did create man. One wanted to put this in a light vein, you might say that what you've got in Genesis chapter 1 is a heavenly view of creation, and in Genesis chapter 2, you've got a kind of worm's eye view of creation. You've got creation viewed from the heavenly standpoint, and you've got creation viewed now in Genesis chapter 2 from an earthly standpoint. Or, as I think actually Genesis 2 and verse 4 suggests to us, especially if we translated it as I think would make sense to us, this is the history. This is where the history begins. And this little uh, phraseology that's used in chapter 2 and verse 4 is used another eight or nine times throughout the book of Genesis. Every time there is a, a new family appears on the scene or there is a focus on events that take place at a particular time, this expression is used. Let me now tell you the history. So we're moving, as it were, from the perspective of eternity, a kind of divine perspective, to the perspective of history, in which we're now focusing on events that take place in the space-time continuum that ultimately engage us and involve us because now we're not learning only about the creation of man, we're going to learn about the story of man, the history of mankind. And so the, the camera, as it were, moves down and focuses in to use uh, the language of what happens when you're buying something on a website. They will tell you if you move your cursor over onto the picture, it will be magnified for you. And here you're looking at a pair of jeans and they look as though they're blue and you move the cursor onto the picture and uh, you can actually see the texture of the fabric. That's the relationship between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Man made as the image of God, as the apex of creation. And now man made by God as the center of creation, the center of history. Uh, creation looked at through some great telescope. Now, the creation of man looked at through a kind of magnifying glass in which we see God's detailed purposes for his life. And there are several things in this passage that I think are worthy of our notice. The first is, and here chapter 2 
is simply enlarging on chapter 1 is the sheer wonder of our creation. Uh, The Bible celebrates this. Indeed, in our country, people celebrated it right through the 19th century. Shakespeare celebrates it. You remember in his, uh, some of his great passages, what a piece of work is a man. And there is this sense, which actually has begun to vanish in our culture, that there is, however tragic man may be, there is a greatness about this creature that is so different from all of the other creatures. And this is what Genesis 2 focuses on. Here is earth in its most primitive form. There is nothing growing that needs a gardener. It's very interesting, actually fascinating, the way Genesis describes this. There was no plant of the field had sprung up. The Lord had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. It's this picture of the earth in its most pristine form, in its, uh, in, its, in its infancy, as it were, where if there is any dew lying on the ground in the morning, there are no footprints on the dew. There is nothing that has yet been touched either by human hand or by human feet. Do you remember in the old days you used to get on the the packages in some food untouched by human hand? And if you were a schoolboy, you made all kinds of jokes as to whether there were gorillas in the factory that were. But nothing had been. This was a this was a a planet on which man's fingers had never been set. The sole of man's foot had never touched the ground. And all of this is described, I think, here to give us a a sense of the atmosphere, the earliness of creation, the, the unimaginableness of an earth without us. In some ways, it's the most is the most stunning thought, don't you think? You, you must sometimes try and get your head around this yourself. It is possible that you might not have been. And yet that's so difficult to grasp because if you had not been, you wouldn't even be thinking about the possibility that you might not have been. It's just too much to take in. And here's this picture of a God who has made this world, who has made this planet Earth, and uh, it's saying things are growing, and they're growing without man. And God doesn't need man. I am unnecessary until God creates me, and then He makes me necessary for Himself. Because he's committed himself to the human race. That's the story that's being told here. But then something very interesting happens that we would never actually be able to work out from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 tells us God makes man in his image, in his likeness. Genesis chapter 2 gives us the details as to how he did it. 
And this is absolutely fascinating. What Genesis chapter 2 says is, well, it tells us about the materials, first of all, doesn't it? It tells us that God made the man from the dust of the ground. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. It's, it's sculptor language, it's potter language, isn't it? The Lord God formed the man out of what? Out of the slime, out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into the man's nostrils. And we are told the man became a living being. Now, first of all, there's something immensely humbling about this, isn't there? Uh, that we, we are of the dust. Amazing how often you can hear these words still at funeral service, dust to dust, and uh, you, you don't take in what that's saying. That's saying we came from dust and we returned to dust. That's all we are. Uh, we have no value. I've read on several occasions uh, scientists calculating how much what you are composed of is actually worth. And usually the sum total is a few pounds. You are worth, in terms of what you are made of, the stuff of which you are made, you, you are simply dust. That's what Genesis is saying. So it's enormously humbling it's very interesting, I find, don't you, that this is what secular man boasts in. This is secular man in his or her opposition to the biblical teaching on creation. This is what secular man boasts in. We came from the slime. We came from the slime. And there's no humility in the statement. There is a kind of extraordinary arrogance in the statement. Don't give us anything of this business of divine creation. We are from the mud. We are mud men and mud women. It's fascinating, isn't it, that uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is so true. Uh, you know, only children boast about playing around in the mud. <coughs> Only the immature boast about playing around in the mud. It's not a self-compliment to say that you came from the mud. That you have wandered forth from the primeval slime. But it's a boast. It's a boast against God. It's a boast against the Bible's teaching on creation. Look at us. We came from the slime. But if we came from the slime and that's the end of it, it shouldn't surprise us. And we need to understand this if we're Christians. It shouldn't surprise us that that kind of conviction has been the breeding ground for the overwhelming sense of a lack of self-worth that has become of epidemic proportions in our young people. I don't say this because I've read it in Christian books. I say this because I've read it in secular analysis. It's one of the largest problems in our society. And it breeds all kinds of other problems. 
Well, what do you expect? If all you've got to say about man is that he's dust and slime. Yes, very superior kind of dust and slime. But at the end of the day, that's all there was and that's all there is. And we are, we are just a piece of biology that is reacting in the cosmos in a way it has been biologically programmed to do. That's all we are. You know, there's another side to that because uh, not all Christians demonstrate intense humility. And I have heard Christians almost spit out how dare they say that we are from the slime. How dare they say that about us? And I want to go along and say, dear brother, dear sister, that's what the Bible teaches. You're from the slime. And you are not reacting in this way out of uh, listening to the Word of God because you're saying, I am something. I am significant. I am important. How dare you say I'm from the slime? And here Genesis gives us a beautiful combination, doesn't it? It's a combination of God getting his hands dirty as he potters about in the mud. And then as he kisses the mud into life. As it were, as he gets his own face dirty by kissing us into an existence in which we are being made as his image to know him and for his glory. So there are two sides to the creation of man in Genesis 2. There's a side that tells us that we are nothing. And there's a side that tells us because of God we are everything. He's made us out of the dust. He's formed and fashioned us and he's kissed us into life. He's been like a tender parent kissing a child awake in the morning from slumber. And you see, this is something you find always in Scripture. This is what stretches our emotions and our affections in worship. It's the distance between the stuff of which we are made and the wonder of God's creation of us out of that slime into his image that stretches our mind's grasp of his greatness and his goodness so that we want to say, what is man that you are mindful of him? He's made of the dust. And what am I that you care for me? And the answer that we're being given in Genesis here is, yes, you are slime but you're my slime. And out of that slime, out of that nothingness, as it were, I have exalted you and kissed you into life because I want you to be my child. And I want to know you and to love you and to serve you. I think it's still true. It certainly was true a number of years ago that the most common title for poetry written by teenagers was the title, Who Am I? Of course, that was the title. In a world like this, in a secular environment like this, of course, there's no way you can know who you are. You've got to make yourself, 
make yourself in your own image or somebody else's image. And so what a glorious thing it is, on the one hand, to be humbled to the dust because we are dust, but at the same time to know who we are. We are those who have been made as God's image by the kiss of his mouth, the intimacy of his love. And there are many things that we may not know and do not know, but we know who we are. We are his children, and he's kissed us into life because he wants to know us and love us and care for us. He wants us to feel the wet touch of his lips upon our whole being and to be assured of his kindness. That's why the second thing to notice here is not just the wonder of our creation, but the bounty of God's provision. Notice what he tells us here in verse 8, that the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Now, you need to get this picture clear because people are not always clear in this picture. The original creation was not all Eden. You got that? The original creation was not all Eden. There was the original creation, and in the east, God planted a garden. Our American members will get this distinction more readily, I think, than we British people do. I remember one of the first times we visited the United States as a family, early 1980s, children, very small, and I said to our host one day, is it all right if my boys go and play in your garden? There was a look of abject horror spread across this woman's face. Go and play in the garden. Now, if you children come to our house and you say, it's okay if the children play in the garden, I'll say, fine. Because I don't make the American distinction between the garden and the yard. The yard is the stuff where you can go and play. The garden is the place where I've spent hours of labor, and I do not want your wild Scottish children who had bit parts in Braveheart coming out and destroying all my labors. So let me put it this way. God has created a yard, but now he's working a garden. And he puts the man in the garden. Now, what's all this about? Why doesn't he make the whole thing garden? I mean, if he can just make a garden, why not just make the whole thing garden? Because he's made man as his image and his likeness. He's given him dominion. And now he's treating him as his son and saying to him, Now listen, I'm giving you a start here. Okay, this is, like, this is like your dad writing a check. You want to start your own business. And dad says, well, I'll put in 25,000 pounds. <laughs> well, you thought, you know, if I knew your dad had 25,000 pounds. This is the father giving his son a start, saying, look, the project here, project divine here, is to turn this whole earth into a garden. That's the project. I've started it, you're going to finish it. And so, Adam, 
Your task in life is to be the chief gardener in Eden. And he says, you are to work that garden and you're to take care of that garden. And what he has in view, certainly when we look at the back of the book where, as in the little books I used to have in primary school, all the answers to be, are to be found. When we look at the back of the book, we discover that God's original plan here was that everything should be garden. Absolutely everything should be garden. That's how the book of Revelation ends, 21 and especially 22. The whole earth has become a garden. You see, this was his plan that Adam would be the gardener, his children would be the, the agriculturalists, there would be engineers, and the whole earth would be turned into a garden. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Because God was really saying to Adam, if you and I are going to enjoy fellowship with one another, we need to have something to talk about. So, I've created the whole cosmos, and I'm going to come sometime in the late afternoon in the cool of the day. We're told he visited in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to talk gardens. I'm going to come and we'll see how you're doing. And when you have children, I've told you to have dominion over everything, to spread out to the whole earth. And when you have children, they have children, and they have children. I don't know how long this might have taken we're going to spread you out to the whole earth and we're going to expand the borders of Eden to the ends of the earth. And then when that's finished, and this is very clear from what Christ will do at the end as we're told in the New Testament, when all that's finished, you can come back and say, Father, we're finished. And we want to give this back to you as our love gift to you. And then what next? So, God has created everything good, but He's not created everything finished. And that's a very important distinction. He's made man to finish off what He starts. And He provides him with everything he needs to do that. There are there are plants, and uh, there's gold in them, there are hills. And uh, this is presumably just a little indication. This is, this is, you know, this is so wonderful. It's a little indication that God is saying to Adam, and Eve will come along next week, or at least she comes along later in Genesis chapter 1. He's saying to Adam, look, every, all the resources you need for everything I want you to do, they're all there. But some of them you're going to have to dig out of the earth. Now, what's really fascinating about the command he gives to Adam is this. He says, I want you to work the garden, and I also want you to guard the garden, to keep the garden. And what's so interesting is that the, the verb he uses, the language he uses is the very language that's used later on in the Old Testament for the work that the priests did in keeping the tabernacle. They are to protect the tabernacle. 
They are to do everything that's necessary for the tabernacle to be for the glory of God. And the people who first heard these uh, chapters in Genesis, the people of the Exodus, the people who were experiencing, watched the priests at work keeping the tabernacle, they, they understood this. And I think when they heard this, they must have surely, the bright ones, the spiritually bright ones, would have made the connection. Ah, Adam was made to be the priest in the garden. And because Adam didn't need forgiveness, he didn't need sacrifice. Wherever he went, he could meet with God. He didn't need a specific tabernacle. The garden was his temple. The garden was the place where he met with God. They would have understood, yes, but uh, he wasn't a priest to make sacrifices. He was a priest gardener. And maybe his children were meant to be priest diggers and priest architects and priest engineers. Isn't that amazing? You know, at the time of the Reformation, in reaction to the Roman Catholic Church's teaching, that if you were going to get forgiveness from God, you needed to go first to a priest, and he would dispense it to you. And the Reformers had this phrase, no priest but Christ, and therefore we are all priests in Christ. We all have the same access to the Father because we all have the same Savior. And so they talked about the priesthood of all believers. But you see, in creation, if I can put it this way, there was a doctrine entitled the priesthood of all men and women. And it is such a, it's a, I find that although my whole life and world has been church and Bible and worship and prayer, I find it such a thrilling thing to go back to creation and see that the vocation that the first man was given to be priest was a priestly vocation that touched everything that could ever possibly be done in this created order to bring glory to God and to bring this world as a thank offering to the Heavenly Father for what He had done. So no matter what my calling in life is, no matter what my task is, you see how this transforms the, the daily drudgery I may be a housewife, or I may work in an office. I, I may work outside in some capacity. I may design things. I may teach others. I may be in medicine. All kinds of things. God has called me to be a priest, to care for the garden. And when things go wrong in the garden, to help to put them right. And to guard the garden, of course, Adam was unconscious of the fact that there would be something that would come into the garden, that there was a darkness outside, that there was a 
some fallen supernatural creature so jealous of God's love and God's sovereignty that he would seek to destroy the fellowship between the man and his God and the father and his son. And so he was to guard it. Such a liberating thing to know. In any occupation in life. That's why, speaking personally, I would never describe anyone else as a priest in a way in which I wouldn't be prepared to describe every Christian in any calling in life as a priest of God, set here to tend the garden. And now to repair the garden and to guard the garden. It's a wonderful perspective Genesis is giving to us on, on what it means for us to, to know God. And, and here's another thing uh, that uh, goes back to the distinction between the garden and the yard. I'm not a gardener, okay? But I do have a thing called a garden, but I haven't gardened it. You know, why do people garden? Why do people garden? Do you know what would have struck the first readers and hearers of this? Who owned gardens in the ancient Near East? Kings owned gardens, pleasure gardens. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Up there, the hanging gardens of Babylon strutting around on his roof and, and smelling the roses like some prince of the realm, hugging the trees and saying, what a garden I've made, all for my pleasure and glory. Garden equaled pleasure in the ancient world. And although I can't understand it, that seems to be true of gardeners. Garden equals enjoyment, pleasure. This is a beautiful aspect of this, that God made us for pleasure. He made us for pleasure. He made us to enjoy our labor. He made us to enjoy the world. He is the ultimate pleasure giver. And the fact that that's the very antithesis of the way in which our neighbors think about God. Our neighbors, whatever they say about believing God as a God of love, really believe in their heart of hearts that God is the ultimate pleasure destroyer. Isn't that true? But you see, he's the ultimate pleasure maker. And we can only have true and lasting pleasure. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know, says John Newton. We can only have lasting pleasure when we're brought back to the Maker's instructions because He surrounded us with exquisite bounty. He is so, so very good. That's what we're learning here. And we need to learn it. Because even regeneration doesn't entirely remove from the Christian's heart that deep-seated suspicion that at the end of the day, although Jesus loves me, I'm not so sure about the Father. So here is the wonder of our creation. There's the bounty of God's provision. 
And then, of course, briefly, there is the nature of our vocation to take care of this garden and to make sure that it's not sabotaged by the evil one. You see, what will happen in Genesis chapter 3 is simply this. The evil one will come along and he will say, Incidentally, that command that God gave to you about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, didn't God actually say that you want to eat of any of the trees in the garden? You see what's happening? We will see what's happening. He's really saying he's not really a pleasure-giving God. He's not really a loving, heavenly Father. And you see, Adam and Eve should have turned to the serpent and said, have you not seen the mud on his face? That is the expression of the love in which he kissed me into life. And don't you see that that tree that he's put there in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he's told me not to eat of, Don't you understand what he's saying? He's saying, look, Adam and Eve, there's a tree there. Actually, it doesn't look any different from any other trees. I think we would be mistaken if we didn't grasp the emphasis that Genesis places on the fact that like all the other trees, this one was very pleasing to look at and its fruit looked delicious. So it wasn't wasn't an ugly fruit tree that Adam might have said, oh, oh, I'm not going to touch that. No, what God wanted of them was to say, look, Adam, I'm giving you everything. But I want you to grow. And so there's a tree there. And I, I'm saying to you, don't eat the fruit of that tree. It's like, don't walk in the grass, isn't it? Because as you obey me because you know I would never ever give you a command that would diminish your pleasure. As you obey me, it will become more and more clear to me and to you that you love me for myself and not just for all the things that I've given to you. And so he's given them this wonderful world to Enjoy. When you see this vision, and we're just scratching the surface of what Genesis 2 says here, when you see this vision of what was meant to be, what a tragedy we have become. And yet there's a very wonderful message in the Bible. Actually, it's connected to the Great Commission, isn't it? That we were hearing about earlier on. That when Jesus had triumphed, You remember what he told his disciples to do? He told his disciples to do exactly what God had told Adam and Eve to do. To go into the whole world and bring it back in tribute to himself. And I've often wondered whether that's the reason why. You remember on the morning of the resurrection when Jesus meets with Mary in the garden where Jesus had been buried. You, uh, do you remember what she said to him? 
Do you remember what John says she thought? Here is the resurrected Jesus, and of course she's too distraught to recognize him. And so the Scriptures tell us, supposing he was, supposing him to be the gardener, she said, where have you taken his body? And you see, when we read that at first, we say, wrong on two counts. Not the gardener didn't take the body. But actually, she was dead right on both counts, because this is the one who had taken the body out of the tomb. And he actually took the body out of the tomb, because he is the gardener. And on that day, he was beginning to make everything new. And that's why at the end of the book of Revelation, those are the words that appear. God makes everything new. And there's the garden. And there's the river. And there's the tree of life. And so the wonderful thing is, as we live in between Genesis 2 and Revelation 22, is that as Christians we know who we are. As people who work in the world, we have a We have a vision and a motive for doing whatever we do that transcends everything. Working for money is incomparably foolish by comparison with this. That God has called us to be priests in His creation, gardeners in His world, part of Jesus' gardening team to bring the good news of the gospel to others. What an amazing God He is to show us on the one hand that we're absolutely nothing. You, pal, you're just slime. But on the other hand, you're my slime. You're everything to me. And the mud is still in my face from kissing you into life. Eventually, it wouldn't be mud on his face, would it? It would be blood on his face. He really loves you that much. He really wants his pleasure and your pleasure to be combined. And it's all here in the beginning. How glorious it is to know it. Heavenly Father, We pray that we may more and more sense how utterly good and kind you are and how perfect your provision is for us so that when we go out of these doors from this safe place, this this little garden that you have begun to remake where our weeds have begun to turn into flowers, that we will go out into the yard outside that has been trampled down by our and others' sins all over the planet, that we'll go out into that world with a sense that you have called us to bring it back to you by faith in Christ and then by service in his kingdom. So help us to do that and to see this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.